This is Silver Star Bible School 2009. The overall theme is the marriage of the Lamb has come and her, his wife hath made herself ready. Brother Ken's subject is the blessing of forgiveness and today's subtitle is a plea for renewal and cleansing. Brother Ken. Thank you, Brother Tim, and good morning, everyone. Saw a few sleepy faces at the breakfast table this morning, so hopefully the classes this morning will reinvigorate us. We'll begin with a, a brief review of some of the points we looked at yesterday. Uh, number one is, if I link my forgiveness of others to them meeting preconditions that I establish, for instance, a confession or an apology, I am allowing the spirituality or lack thereof of the other person to determine when and if I will ever forgive them. It's a very dangerous situation to be in, especially when we see time and again Scripture admonishing us to forgive one another. Secondly, the forgiveness I extend by love becomes a power greater than the power of evil unleashed by the sin against me. I am not able to forgive someone who has dealt me an evil hand without doing it by faith and by the love of Christ, not by the love of Ken, but taking his love and bringing it into my life and realizing that's what his love calls me to do. The only way to obey the commands of Matthew 5, verse 44, that speaks of the need to love our enemies, etc., is to first forgive those who have worked the evil against me. Stephen, Paul, and David forgave those who sinned against them without waiting for an apology, without waiting for those who had done the sin to repent. And lastly, to be able to forgive immediately, I must believe God will work out much good from the evil. But if I am preoccupied with the wrong that I have suffered, it is not faith that the evil produces in my heart, it elicits the pride that dwells there to surface, and it leaves me unable to forgive. We spent some time yesterday, you'll recall, also looking at uh, what Joseph teaches us about forgiveness. Despite all the evil unleashed against him by his brethren, he never held even a grudge against his brethren. Secondly, we see in the life of David how it covered a multitude of sins, the forgiveness that he extended. Not by ignoring the sins, but by removing them. It was exactly what the situation needed to win the erring brethren back to righteousness. And if we can begin to see the situation as God sees it, this is why he commands us, when your brother sins against you, forgive him. I need you to forgive him. The brother needs you to be forgiving towards him so the brother who has sinned can be won back to righteousness. The last thing God needs when a brother sins against me is for me to turn on that brother in any form or fashion. I do my Heavenly Father absolutely no good when a brother sins against me and my reaction, my response, is anything but forgiving my brother. He needs us. God needs us to forgive so that he can help win that brother back to righteousness. The issue is not about what's happened to me. The issue is about saving my brother. Fourthly, Joseph didn't consign the evil he suffered to time, but to faith, recognizing God was using the evil to save himself and his family. A key verse with respect to forgiveness in Joseph's life is in chapter 50 at verse 20. And lastly, despite the evil Joseph suffered, his willingness to forgive enabled the prophetic dreams of chapter 37 to be fulfilled. Now we finished yesterday with a brief review of three of the four times in the Gospels where this absolute command, there's no denying it, there's no getting around it, there's no trying to redefine it or to explain it any other way. That's an absolute command that if we are not willing to forgive others their trespasses, God will not forgive us. And Matthew 6 is one of the four occurrences. We saw there that God will not forgive us if we do not forgive those who sin against us. In Matthew 11, at verse 25 to 26, each time we pray for forgiveness, we ought to also be praying, and we ought to also be forgiving anyone that we have ought against, 
so that we should never be praying just for our sins to be forgiven. That is only half of the prayer that should come from our heart with respect to forgiveness. There always has to be the other half that we are also forgiving those who have sinned against us. And in Luke 6, verse 37, we saw that we are to forgive by faith. If you forgive, God says, I will forgive you, not by merit, not by requiring a person to meet our predetermined conditions. When a sin occurs in our life where someone has sinned against us, forgiveness should be the first thing we do, not the last thing that we do in the situation. So we come then to the fourth occurrence in the Gospels of the command that we forgive one another. And that's found in Matthew 18. We have to play a little catch-up today. We're hoping to cover the uh, parable of the unforgiving creditor and then have a few comments on how forgiveness interrelates with ecclesial discipline before going on to Psalm 51. The context of the parable of the unforgiving creditor, as we know in Matthew 18, is found in verses 21 and 22. Then came Peter unto Jesus, or unto him, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times. Jesus said unto him in verse 22, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. It's obvious that Peter is struggling with the concept of forgiveness, and he is trying to work out in practical terms. Now, now just how often, Lord, do I need to be willing to forgive my brother? So it shows that Peter is turning this concept of forgiveness over in his mind. And he's having trouble coming to grips with it. Is seven times reasonable, Lord? It seems to be. Seven times seems to be a reasonable number. And this shows how the forgiveness of God, as God defines forgiveness, is a result of his character. It doesn't come naturally. It's not in our nature to forgive like God forgives. So if we are not applying the principles of his word to how we forgive others, and we're just forgiving them as we've always forgiven them, and we're not making conscious decisions in our life when situations develop, and we know the principles of the word are at odds with the principles of our flesh, If that battle, that struggle is not happening, then we are probably forgiving on the basis of the flesh. And Peter is here evidently struggling with this issue. Forgiveness as God defines forgiveness must be learned. It must be developed as a part of our new character. So expect to have trouble with it. Expect the flesh to resist your efforts to forgive. If the flesh is quite comfortable with how you're forgiving, take another look. The natural mind is not capable of understanding what divine forgiveness is without first being instructed by it. Peter, left to himself, would never have naturally come to understand what Jesus is about to teach him. And in Jesus' response to Peter, including this parable of the unforgiving creditor, as it's called, Two things are revealed to us. Number one, he will reveal the Lord will a great deal about our need to forgive others. And secondly, he will reveal how our natural mind views this wonderful principle of forgiveness. It wants to take all of the blessings and advantages of forgiveness without having to give anything in exchange. In answer to Peter's specific inquiry, he will teach Peter that there is no limit to the number of times that we should be willing to forgive our brother. In essence, he's telling Peter, how often do you seek forgiveness from God? How often do you want God to forgive you, Peter? Let that be the upper limit of what you are willing to forgive your brother. A quick summary of the parable. The king takes account of the debts owed to him. Servant is brought before him who owes 10,000 talents. That's roughly the equivalent of $10 million. Now, if the price of gold or silver has changed substantially since we've been up on the mountain, that may have fluctuated. But it's about $10 million. Some will say eight, some will say 12. It's an enormous debt. It's a debt that the creditor could never repay. That's what the point of the parable is. And it's representing the debt we owe to God for our sins against him. 
The king orders him to be sold along with his family and his children and his possessions to, to be sold to pay for his debt. And he pleads for more time, for patience. He will repay the debt. The king, it says, is moved with compassion and mercy and releases him and forgives him his debt. The same servant, as we know, then goes out and finds his fellow servant who owes him about the equivalent of ten dollars, a hundred pence. Ten million, ten dollars. And he takes him by the throat and tells him to pay what he owes. The man who owes ten dollars pleads with the man to whom he owes the money. And the unforgiving creditor refuses, denies the request, and as we know, throws him in prison until his debt is paid. The king learns of this exchange, calls the man back who owed the $10 million, and re-establishes his debt, has him cast into prison, calls him a wicked servant, and condemns him for not showing compassion to the man who owed him $10. It says the king is wroth with him and delivers him to the tormentors till he should repay his full debt, which sitting in prison owing $10 million, he would never, ever be able to do. So one of the perspectives of this parable provides us with our natural approach to forgiveness. Naturally, we tend to act just like the forgiven servant who turns around and becomes the unforgiving creditor. We want all the benefits that forgiveness has to provide for us, but we are not willing to forgive others. We've identified several aspects of natural thinking that are exposed in the parable. The first is that when we fail to forgive, the parable shows the root cause is a lack of compassion on our part. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee, the parable states in verse 33. We, we tend to treat others who have sinned against us with far less mercy and kindness than the level of mercy and kindness that we gladly receive and enjoy at the hand of God. Secondly, we tend to minimize the seriousness or the magnitude of our own sins against God. And then we turn around and we maximize the seriousness of the sins that others commit against us. So when, when someone sins against us, our focus is all on the wrong done to us. And we blow that part of it way out of proportion. And we tend to travel through life and conclude that the sins that have been committed against us are far more grievous than the sins that we commit against our Heavenly Father. And, and Peter reflects the natural view of all of us. We can see the sins and others against us far more clearly than our own sins. The truth of the matter is our natural view of our sins and the sins that are committed against us is upside down. That's what this parable is impressing upon us. Our sins are associated with the $10 million. The sins that others do against us, that's associated with the $10. And what, Peter is, what Jesus is appealing to Peter and the disciples to recognize, and us, is get a right perspective on the magnitude of your sins against God and the sins of others against you. The parable encourages us to keep our focus on our sins, not on the sins of what others do to us. Thirdly, our natural mind likes to keep score. It likes to note when others sin against us. So that comment at the lake yesterday that somebody made to me, well, the comment that was made to you, and there was no comment I'm thinking about, but just the idea that when we interact with each other, there's this little score sheet that's taking place. What did he mean by that? I'm not like that. He's far worse than I am. I don't know why he's talking about that in my case. That's how our natural mind thinks. We are keeping score of all the times that others are offending us and looking for the gravity or the, the, the seriousness of those sins. Jesus is telling us in this parable, don't keep score. Don't bother counting the $10 when there's $10 million on this side of the ledger. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love thinketh no evil in verse 5. 
The Greek means it doesn't keep score. To keep track of offenses committed against us is to lose sight of the meaning of forgiveness. We'll say that again. To keep track, to keep score of the offenses that are committed against us is to lose sight of the meaning of forgiveness and the magnitude of the forgiveness that our Heavenly Father uh, extends to us. Brother Carter, in his book on parables, addresses the aspect of what about forgiving and forgetting. And this is what he says, and I think it's quite wise. When forgiveness is extended, the past is forgotten by the injured so far as holding a matter against another person goes. The past is forgotten by the injured, by the one who was sinned against, so far as holding a matter against another person goes. Will we forget the sin? No. But in terms of holding anything against the person, that should be gone. And think back about Joseph. How often did he think and reflect in a negative way about all the evil that his brothers did to him? If anything, whenever he thought about it, he would think of the joy and the wonder of how God was able to work such great things out of that evil. That's where the mind of a spiritual man goes to. So forget what has been done to us in terms of holding a matter of against another person. Next, we see that we have no difficulty in this parable in justifying the need to hold others accountable for their sins against us, even to taking punitive action against them until they make restitution. By our nature, when someone sins against us, we are far more interested in vengeance of some kind than we are in forgiveness. The next point is that by our nature, we, won't, we don't want to have to forgive sins against us. Instead, we would prefer to insist upon some kind of repayment, some kind of restitution, so that when we are sinned against, we have a decision to make, brethren and sisters. Do we want to go the retribution route, or do we want to go the forgiveness route? And that's a decision we have to make every time someone sins against us. Am I going to look for retribution of some kind? Repayment of some kind? Or am I going to forgive them? Because that's $10 versus $10 million. You can't have a debt owed to you repaid and also forgiven. You can't do it. That's why we have a decision to make. So when a brother sins against me, I have to decide. Is he going to repay this debt he owes me? Or am I going to forgive that debt? Keeping in mind how our Heavenly Father treats us. The man who would not forgive the $10 was not looking to forgive. He was looking for the $10. Like all other aspects of selfishness, when it is applied to forgiveness, we want what's best for us. We would rather have the $10, because that's important. You can do a lot with $10. We'd rather have the $10 than to forgive. So we hang on, if we're not careful, to those words that were spoken. Maybe he meant it in jest, I don't know, but it hurt. And I'm going to carry that hurt with me all day. Until he does a bigger hurt, and I'll carry that hurt with me. That's how our natural mind thinks. And this parable is encouraging us to let go of the debt. Don't even consider it a debt. Forgive it. So to forgive means we will not be repaid. We will not receive restitution. We will not be made whole from whatever injury has occurred. Whatever injury we have incurred from this sin, it is not going to be made whole. It is not going to be repaid. This isn't our concern. Our concern is to help the one who has sinned against us. And that is why in this parable a primary issue is a warning to us that we need to learn to forgive others. And there's strong language in this parable about this wicked creditor who was forgiven much and would not forgive little because it shows how serious God sees this situation when we are unwilling to forgive.
those who sin against us. When we fail to forgive them, God likens it to us seizing them by the throat and casting them into prison. Our failure to forgive others will produce the effect of having the guilt of all our past sins reinstated. You owe $10 million again, Mr. Servant, who I forgave, who turned around and was not willing to forgive others. God is trying to impress upon us. This man is called a wicked servant and cast into prison. And in the language of parables, we all know what that means. To be called a wicked servant and to be cast into prison, there is no hope, no hope of salvation. There will be no kingdom in the future of he who fails to forgive those who have sinned against him or her because of the mercy and the grace that has been shown to him and the forgiving of the 10,000 talents and he wouldn't turn around and forgive the pittance is how God views it and brethren and sisters I'm not trying to diminish the great evil that can be done against us it was not pittance that the brethren did against Joseph but when you look at the sins that they committed against him versus the sins that he committed against the father the parable is teaching Joseph just like it's teaching us keep the right perspective we know our sins are enormous against God. We know we fail Him constantly. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to keep score of those sins. But God says, if I were to keep score, this is the value that I would place on them. Similar to godly love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. It says we can have all faith. You don't have to turn there. All understanding. We can do all sorts of work in the Ecclesia. We can be involved in all kinds of preaching and teaching and maintain what appears to be a very active life in the truth. And if we do it without love, Paul says, we are nothing. And this parable is teaching us that we can be fully active in the truth and have a life in which we seem to be dedicating ourselves to God. But if we have not learned to forgive others, we will not be forgiven ourselves. So the strong language in this parable is a stern warning against the idea of forgiving those who hurt us. It's not against the idea, it's against the nature that is so bent against that idea. If you're anything like me, some of the ideas that we have shared with you, the first time you heard them, you rejected them. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. The Bible doesn't tell me I have to do that. Those are the thought processes I had, brethren and sisters, as I went through the study. You come across these things and you say, that can't be what it's teaching. I don't want to have to do that. And then you look deeper and you find out that's exactly what we're being asked to do. So don't be surprised this week in talking about this subject, if there are some aspects of it that your mind does not want to have to accept and to embrace. Because we're all reflecting upon the hurt this week that others have done to us. And surely there must be some kind of repayment, some kind of remuneration, some kind of restitution that they should provide us before we forgive them. And this parable teaches us, no, that's not what God's looking for. The parable also teaches us that the extent to which we forgive others is the extent to which God will forgive us. So his mercy is flexible enough to vary from person to person to person. Verse 35 says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. God establishes a direct link between his mercy towards us and our mercy towards others. And he does that to underscore for us the importance of our being forgiving. If we won't forgive others, he won't forgive us. If we are going to hold others to a level of accountability that requires them to repay us or reimburse us or whatever it is, then God will hold out that same level of accountability to us. Not but because he isn't merciful, but because he is trying to show us. Don't put a price tag on forgiveness. Don't establish some type of conditions Take your pride out of the picture. Forgive. 
if you want to be forgiven. 2 Samuel 22, verse 26. We don't have to turn there. It says that with the, with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with the upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. So that if we assume an exacting and unforgiving attitude towards others, that's how God will assume an attitude towards us. He is freely willing to forgive us the enormous debt that we owe him. But he asks us to be willing to show the same mercy to others. Another aspect we learn from this is that forgiveness should be unlimited. It's the answer of Jesus to Peter's inquiry. It's the principle of the 490. Seven times Peter, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. And don't start counting and say, well, when I get to 491, then I can stop. (laughs) Unlimited is what Jesus is trying to show us. That's how forgiving we should be towards others who sin against us. There is no limit to God's forgiveness towards us, neither should there be a limit in our forgiveness toward each other. And it needs to be from the heart, which which means our forgiveness of one another must be genuine and sincere. There's an implied danger when Jesus tacks that phrase from the heart on to the end of verse 35, or 36 as the case may be. And the danger is we can forgive in word only. And we don't forgive from the heart. We don't forgive in sincerity and in truth. What that means is forgiveness has to be complete and total. And it has to parallel the forgiveness that we are looking for God to extend toward us. And we recall how the scriptures speak of God taking all our sins and casting them into the sea. As far as east is from the west, as high as heaven is from the earth. That's what God does with our sins. And that's what we need to do with the sins of others who sin against us. Not that we can remove those sins. Only God can remove those sins. But in our heart and in our mind, we should be done with the matter. There's no payment to be made here on this debt, on this bill. That bill has been forgiven, never to be raised again. We're done with the matter. Isn't that how we want God to treat our sins? So that when we pray for him to forgive us, we're not looking for him to half-heartedly forgive us or only forgive us for a while and then bring the situation back up to us. Total and complete forgiveness is what we expect of the Father in grace and mercy, what we look for, what we benefit from. So he says when we turn around and forgive one another, we need to forgive each other totally and completely. So that if I wish for God to blot out my sins, to remove them, as far as the east is from the west, that's how I should be willing to forgive my brother. The king in the parable doesn't extend the time for repayment. He wipes out the debt. The matter was closed. So that if we continue to recall the offense and harbor the ill will, after we've said we've forgiven the person and reflect upon the pain, we haven't really forgiven them from the heart. Some of the lessons that emerge. Sorry, I'm one slide behind. Some of the lessons that emerge in terms of the importance of clarifying what is being taught by forgiveness and what isn't being taught by forgiveness. Notice this parable is inserted by Matthew in chapter 18 in the very same place, in fact, right next door to the issue of ecclesial discipline. That's not coincidental, I don't think, because he wants us to see both issues side by side. Forgiveness does not mean we turn a blind eye to error or sin. Forgiveness does not mean we condone sin. That is not God's definition of forgiveness. Jesus' forgiveness of those who put him to death did not mean he was ignoring their sin. 
It doesn't mean he was condoning their sinful behavior. They still needed to repent. They still needed to go through the process of Acts 3 and be converted and to confess their sin in order to be saved. But had Jesus failed or refused to forgive them on the grounds of what they had done, and had he in his mind concluded, well, they need to apologize to me, they need to confess their sin to me before I will forgive them, this would not have produced the repentance of the people that day. But it may have cost the Lord his life. If he went to his death holding on to any seeds of hatred or ill will towards those who had done this great evil to him, he could have jeopardized God's entire plan. And it shows how important it is that we be rid of the evil spirit, even if we can while it is being shown towards us. You can't be helpful to a person who has sinned against you to genuinely seek their spiritual well-being to help them recover until you have forgiven them from the heart. It, it's, it's extremely important that we not confuse forgiving others with condoning wrong behavior. Forgiveness is not intended to provide a cover or an excuse for sin. Because if it's used in that vein, all it will do is perpetuate wrong behavior, which will not be helpful to the individual. So that if you have a family member in the ecclesia who has traveled the path of sin, and you elect to ignore it, that is not forgiveness. Not by God's definition. This is not compassion. This is not mercy. This is condoning wrong behavior. When God forgives us, He is not condoning the wrong behavior we have done. He is forgiving it. And it's very important we have this clear, especially in these last days, in the dark age that we live in, these very last days until the Lord returns. When, as we know from Scripture, that the violence and the immorality will be rampant, widely accepted, even promoted. It's critical that we keep a standard of holiness present in our lives personally, in our families, in our ecclesias, regardless of what others may be doing around us. The faithful in the last days will retain a standard of holiness. It doesn't mean we will always live up to it. It doesn't mean we will be sinless. But that will continue to be the benchmark by which we gauge our conduct in all that we do until the day the Lord returns. We will do our young people and our children no favors by confusing forgiveness with turning a blind eye to sin. Sin must be recognized and acknowledged for what it is. And forgiveness does not abdicate the responsibility of the ecclesia to uphold right doctrine and conduct. So that we have on the screen, I believe, that forgiveness cannot be set at odds. That principle of forgiveness, that divine principle of forgiveness that we're speaking of this week, cannot be set at odds with the ecclesia's responsibility to uphold truth. But neither will we ever be helpful to a person who has been overcome by sin if we refuse to forgive them. There's another danger we face, and that is the danger of equating forgiveness with ecclesial discipline. And if we're not careful... And you hear brethren and sisters speak in these terms. If we're not careful and we end up equating forgiveness with ecclesial discipline, we end up withholding forgiveness in the name of upholding truth. This is what the Roman Catholic Church does. It equates forgiveness with membership in the, truth, in the church. And it won't forgive you until you have done what the church says you need to do. And it will dangle 
your membership in the church and forgiveness of your sins in front of you until you comply with what the church teaches. Why does Jesus talk about the need for ecclesial discipline in Matthew 18 and then turn around and warn us that we had better forgive our brothers and sisters when they sin against us unless he is telling us that we ought to forgive the brother who sins but then hold him accountable for his actions. Those two issues are not the same. If we get them confused and we put them together we end up putting ourselves in the position of God and the sinner remains unforgiven until the ecclesia decides to accept that. Forgiveness is not a sin to be extended to someone who is not repented. It is not a sin to forgive someone who has not repented. Jesus did it, Stephen did it, Paul did it, David did it, Joseph did it, and many, many others. It is not a sin to forgive someone who is not repented. It is a sin to fail to hold a person accountable for their wrongdoing. But you can hold a person accountable, Matthew 18 is teaching us, and already have forgiven them. We don't help the situation by withholding our forgiveness. If anything, we introduce a new and unhelpful element to the situation. Because the erring brother now needs to obtain my forgiveness before his standing with the ecclesia can be resolved. And I end up placing myself in a very inappropriate position if I convey to the ecclesia that the matter has to be right with me and I have to forgive the person before they should be acceptable to the ecclesia. That is not what Matthew 18 is teaching. If we equate ecclesial discipline with forgiveness, we may end up never forgiving the person when we should. And as we are warned in the parable of the unforgiving creditor, as a result, we may never be forgiven ourselves. So we have to separate forgiveness from ecclesial discipline. Matthew 18 shows us that you can forgive a person and still hold him accountable. Forgiving the erring brother and letting the ecclesia determine the appropriate discipline to be taken. And in the end, brethren and sisters, it's their decision, not yours. Because when you go and get another brother or two to have a conversation with the brother who has erred, which you need to do, then the responsibility for that situation passes from you to them. And when they determine that the ecclesia now needs to get involved because the brother has not yet changed his ways, the responsibility passes from the two or three to the ecclesia. You are now done with the responsibility. It is passed to the ecclesia. If we fail to see that, and we somehow think that we are still accountable and still responsible for this brother's situation, and we get our forgiveness with him mixed up with the ecclesial discipline, we end up in a terrible position. And then Jesus says, let me tell you about the parable of the unforgiving creditor. So when you put the two principles together, Jesus is teaching us to forgive our erring brother, but if his sin is serious enough, to where corrective action is necessary, including action that would involve other brethren or even the ecclesia, then take that step as well. But I guarantee you, you will be in a much, much, much better position to help your brother who has sinned against you if you have already forgiven him than if you have not forgiven him. And that remains an issue to be resolved in these discussions. The determining factor is not your suffering. It's the brother's salvation. It's the spiritual well-being of the ecclesia. There's a warning in James 3. We won't turn there, but I just offer that. It's what an ecclesia looks like when its members have lost the ability to forbear and forgive. We're going to move on now to, uh, to Psalm 51, but just a couple of comments about James 3.
You can turn there if you like. I probably shouldn't have told you not to turn there. Because the phrase is used by James in this description of an ecclesia that has lost its ability to forgive. The, the phrase is used, the terms used, bitter envying. The area we're looking at is verse 14 of chapter 3 to verse 1 of chapter 4. Strife, confusion, evil work, wars, fightings. All terms that James uses to describe the ecclesia. They had not learned how to forgive one another from the heart. They had chosen a different path. And there is a picture of what happens in an ecclesia that chooses not to forgive. The solution is found in verses 7 to 11. Again, we're not going to go through them, but not surprisingly, what James identifies in those verses are the steps of repentance leading to forgiveness. As sinners, they needed to cleanse their hands, to cease from their wicked works. Purify your hearts, he tells them. Determining your heart to walk in a new direction. Be afflicted, mourn, and weep. Let a contrite heart and a broken heart and a broken spirit become your demeanor. Not the demeanor that you are presently reflecting. Humble yourselves. Speak not evil one of another. The discussions unleashed when sin occurs are not helpful to the situation. And he says, discontinue those. Only speak of good things to each other. Put the, put the sins behind you. Learn to adopt a new walk, a new approach to resolving your problems. Because those brethren and sisters were not forgiving one another. But we want to turn now to Psalm 51. It's fundamental to our understanding of forgiveness as revealed in Scripture. As we know, it's a model of true repentance and restoration. And it's specifically written, not for the unbeliever, but for a believer who has been overcome by sin. It reveals the mind of a righteous man now pouring out his heart to God. Though forgiven, back in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, when David had his conversation with Nathan, and Nathan exposed his sin and said that God had forgiven David in the matter, he is still seeking to be renewed and cleansed due to the enormous guilt associated with his sin. Recall how we said God forgives us with a purpose. He's not just looking to wipe our slate clean. Sometimes if we're, if we're not careful, that's what we're thinking. I've got this whole pile of sins that I need to bring before you today, God, because I haven't asked for forgiveness for a while. So I'm hoping to have this whole slate cleansed, and I know I can have it cleansed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not why God forgives us, just to wipe our slate clean. He forgives us with a purpose, and that purpose is to lead us away from sin and back to righteousness. And Psalm 51 shows how that purpose was achieved and the forgiveness of David. We don't have time to go through it in detail, but want to use the psalm this morning to reflect upon the principles and the lessons that we have been learning about forgiveness this week and what they look like when they are put into practice. Notice in verse 1 where David starts out. Not surprisingly, he starts out with the character of God himself. See, David is familiar with what happened in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. And he will appeal to God on the basis of his grace and his mercy and his compassion. You see, David realized where he was. He was back in Exodus 32 in the sins he committed. He was there with Israel with the golden calf. An enormous sin, unconfessed, denied. And what he needed, being in Exodus 32, was the loving and forgiving and merciful principle of forgiveness found in Exodus 34. And it is not coincidental that that is where he starts out. He understood the connection between God's character and forgiveness. He had learned what Moses learned. So the encouragement to us, brethren and sisters, 
is from time to time God's sons and daughters will find themselves in Exodus 32 in their life. It may not be the same type of immoral, immoral sin that Israel was involved in. Sin is so wide and deep and broad, it could be any number of sins. But we could find ourselves in a situation in our life where we are rising up and playing in ways that we shouldn't be rising up and playing, and certainly not to worship Yahweh. And if we find ourselves in those situations, the solution is not to deny it, not to pretend we aren't there, not to keep going until somebody else finds out about it, not to think that somehow we can live in Exodus 32 and God will somehow just come to accept us in that condition. That's where David was. And that's where David knew he needed to leave. And he leaves that situation on the basis of God's character. And that's what we can do, brothers and sisters. Our God is a forgiving God. We have to make a change. But there is no sin, no sin, that God is not willing to forgive if we go through the steps of Psalm 51. And it becomes very helpful in helping others who have been overcome by sin. And from time to time we come across those who themselves are in Exodus 32. And they won't admit it. It's not that bad. It's only infrequent. Others are doing far worse. You want me to tell you what this brother did when he was younger, or what this sister is doing right now? But when we are dealing with an individual that is in Exodus 32, they have got the pass through the door of Psalm 51. If they're unwilling to be receptive to these principles, there's little we can do to help them. There's little God can do to help them. But pass through the door of Psalm 51, they must. Pass through the door of Psalm 51, we must. If we are to return to righteousness. But the encouragement is there because in verse 1 David speaks of the multitude of tender mercies that God is prepared to extend to us. Not because some days he's an angry God and some days he's a loving God. Some days he's a merciful God and some days he's a just God. He is a God who loves. And he is a God who forgives. And he is prepared to forgive. Provided we follow the pattern that David has left on record for us. So that it's worth noting in verses three, 1 to 3, the three steps that David identifies. In verse 1 he makes an appeal to God on the basis of God's character. In verse 2, he then declares his desire to be washed and cleansed from the horror of the sins that he has committed. And in verse 3, he confesses his sins. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He accepted full responsibility for his sins. One of the righteous requirements that God looks to for forgiveness in verse 16 and 17, skipping down to the end, just to connect David's mind. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou desirest not in burnt offering. The lightest, sorry, not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David realized the sin he had committed was such that participating in a ritual was not what God was looking for. It was a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And the word for broken means to shatter. The word for contrite means to be, means to be crushed. Not crushed in the sense of despair, but crushed in the sense of the spirit of rebellion that the natural heart produces. Crushed with respect to the sorrow associated with genuine repentance. So that was the spirit that David brought in this psalm. In verse 4, he declares both the evil of his sins and the righteousness of God. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. David's sin, like all sin, was a challenge to God's righteousness. It was challenging what God declared to be righteous and unrighteous. It's like a child who disobeys their parents. 
Not only has the child sinned, but the child is challenging, whether mom and dad. And what they have said is right and wrong is actually right and wrong. And it's important for the child to realize that not only did they err, but what mom and dad have said is right. That is the path we need to follow. So that when Jesus is on the cross, he is declaring the righteousness of God. Sin needs to be crucified before we can live under righteousness. That is the way to overcome sin. David, in Psalm 51, is declaring the righteousness of God, certainly not from the cross as a sinless man, but from the depths of despair to which he had been, and now having been forgiven, he was there to declare the righteousness of God. This is the right path to take, ye sinners. What God has brought into my life is the right course to keep us from sin, so that both men one sinless and one a grievous sinner recognized the importance of declaring God's righteousness. And it's not because God is egotistical. you got to say, my way is right. That is not why we need to declare God righteous and how we live. As we know, we are commanded to declare God righteous, even in our sin and to uphold his righteous principles because God knows as soon as we abandon his righteousness he can't save us as soon as a person loses focus on the declared righteousness of God and that being their way of life there is no way to save that person so there is David in the midst of his sin having been forgiven telling us that the righteousness of God is the proper way to go Against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil, he says in verse 4, in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. He wanted all to know that God was right in this matter. And we'll leave it there for today and pick up with uh, the remainder of the psalm tomorrow. Lord willing.